right, good morning Emmaus. I hope you get used to this phrase because I'm going to tell you to open to the book of Daniel. Uh, and I hope to tell you to open to the book of Daniel for many more weeks uh, to come. We are beginning a new series this morning through the book of Daniel. And to be quite honest, I don't know exactly uh, how many weeks it will take. We want to, you know, make sure we get the details, but also get the broad sweep of, of the book because there is an overarching theme to the book of Daniel. I can tell you that the chapter one will take four weeks. Uh, we know that part up, up front of kind of how we're going to walk through chapter one. And I want to begin over the next couple of weeks by just doing a couple of background sermons that in order to understand what's happening in the book of Daniel, there's a couple of background themes that are particularly important. Today we're going to be talking about the theme of exile, and I was pretty far along in my life personally, in my life as a Christian, before I understood the idea of exile and all that was behind that. So we're going to talk about that. Next week we'll deal with Babylon and why that is such a big part of the story. And then we just want to take a couple of weeks to talk about God's faithfulness and how that runs throughout the book of Daniel and then what it looks like for us to be faithful and responding to God. And so that is going to be our direction for chapter 1. And there's obviously lots of bits and pieces to that. And then we'll just continue to move ahead as, as the Lord directs us. So I hope for you that this is an encouraging series as you think about God's work in your life and how we respond to God's work in the world we have those journals out in the uh, lobby. If you want to pick up one of those journals, I think we still have a few left. And if you want to take personal notes or just read throughout the week, know that that's an option for you as, as well. Let me read to you from Daniel chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. And really, verse 1, frankly, verses 1 and 2 will get our attention. But we want to read verses 1 through 7 to set the scene. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, use without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. This is the word of the Lord. Over the last year, maybe year plus, have you ever wished that you lived through precedented times? Um, it seems like Every event is unprecedented. We live through unprecedented times, unprecedented early season ice storms, unprecedented pandemics, unprecedented attacks on the capital amid political upheaval, unprecedented allergy seasons. Uh, like just one time could we live through a precedented event. Now granted, not every event that is called unprecedented 
is actually unprecedented. Some of that language just comes because we live in a hyped culture where you're always trying to drive something to the top of the webpage and get people's attention. But we do recognize that we live in a time of uncertainty, a little bit of chaos, a lot of upheaval in different areas. We live in that type of world, and that is where the book of Daniel becomes such a gift to us of how do we live as God's people in that kind of world. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, remember what it says there at the very beginning, the way that this tension and conflict is set up in this book of the Bible. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. You can already see this conflict, this contrast that's being set up here between Judah and Babylon, between this king that reigned over God's promised land and this king that reigned to the east. You see the conflict beginning to stir here. Anytime we study scripture and you run into particular dates or events or names, we want to get in the habit of asking ourselves those type of journalistic questions, who, what, when, where, why, how, good questions to use when doing Bible study, just circling those words, underlining them, trying to make connections with what's going on historically. Here in verse one, what is happening that sets the scene for the book of Daniel? Well, what's happening is what we call the exile of Judah, the exile of the people of God in this situation. Let me set the scene for you. Just a little bit of Bible history, a little bit of Bible trivia. I know some of you eat this up, and some of you are waiting for the main point of the sermon, so I completely understand that. But this is important background material. When you think about God establishing his people, and they ask for a king, and God said, well, you may not want that king, but I'm going to give you that king. Um, and so you have Saul, and then you have David, and then you have Solomon. And what happens after Solomon? You see a split of the kingdom. And it's a split between the northern tribes, the northern ten tribes, and the southern two tribes, which are going to be Judah and Benjamin there in the south. Now the northern tribes, these ten tribes that were in the north part of the promised land, in the year 722 B.C., they are sent into exile by a group of people called the Assyrians. So 722 BC is a big date in your Bible. The Assyrians come in and they overtake the northern tribes which have rebelled against the way of God and God has sent prophets to warn them and they don't listen and so they're sent into exile. And you would think that if your older sibling gets in trouble, as the younger sibling, you wanna be able to learn from that and not follow the same way, but guess what? The younger sibling does not learn. Um, and so what you find here is this development of where Judah continues to turn away from the Lord. They continue to do their own thing. And God in his mercy sends one last good king to the people. And he sends the young Josiah. And Josiah comes and he tries to turn the people back to the way of the Lord. He tries to turn them back to the law, back to the word of the Lord. And he does that, but ultimately Josiah meets his demise in 609 B.C., and from 609, you get a string of four lousy kings that just never find their way in leading the people of God in, in the right direction. And so three of those kings end up being Josiah's sons, which is not a good reflection of the way Josiah led, but they begin to turn against the Lord. And one in particular is one named Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim, his problem is, that he just wants to join whatever the power team is at the time. So if Egypt's winning, he'll go with Egypt. If Egypt's losing, 
he will enter the transfer portal and he'll go with Babylon. And if Babylon is losing, then he's going to go back to, and he, he's trying to find a worldly solution to a spiritual problem. He's trying to go with worldly power and finally it begins to fall apart. And in 605, Nebuchadnezzar ends up coming against the city and sends a group of people into exile. I want you to see this map just to kind of give you an idea of what this looks like geographically. Ultimately, there are going to be multiple exiles, multiple groups of people sent out of the promised land. It happens kind of in three parts, 605, 597, and then ultimately in 586, the temple is destroyed, and, and that's kind of the end of that period where Babylon comes in and takes total reign. But there on the left, you can see that red arrow that's pointing toward Israel, what we would know as Israel, what would have been the promised land where these southern tribes were located. And they're taken into exile into what we would consider modern southeastern Iraq. Pretty close to Kuwait, but not quite that far down toward the Gulf. So they're taken into to modern-day Iraq. They're taken into exile. Now, what does this look like when we turn back to verse 2? Look at what happens here in verse 2. It says that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. Now we're going to get to that verse in two weeks because there is a very important theme that runs through that verse. The second half of verse 2 says that Nebuchadnezzar brought them to the land of Shinar. When you see Shinar there in your Bible, that's equivalent to Babylon. We're talking about the same area. And again, next week, we're just going to dig all the way into that word and see everything that's going on behind the scenes because that's a key term in the book of Daniel. So you have, the, they're taken to Shinar. They're taken there to what we consider modern-day Iraq. And he took these things to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, it'd be bad enough that these material items were taken from the temple to Babylon, but it's not just material items. People are taken away, are taken into exile. Look in verse 3. The king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace. And they were to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And the king assigned them, here's this famous line in Daniel that we know what's going to happen, but we have to set ourselves up for it. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And for whatever reason, we continue to refer to Daniel as Daniel, not Belteshazzar, but we refer to the other three by the name they're given there in Babylon. We know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or if you watch VeggieTales back in the day, Shackrack and Benny uh, is really how we, how we know them. If you showed those VeggieTale videos to, uh, to your grandkids or, or your kids. How do you live in exile? How do you live when the place you call home is no longer your home? And I know this is going to be a drastic scene that I'm going to set up, but, but imagine for a second. Take some of our finest teenagers— which I know are going to be your kids and grandkids, but just imagine whoever those finest teenagers are, the ones who are going to come into power, those who are going to lead us in the days ahead. Our church over the coming weeks is going to put a lot of attention on those next generations, 
God, what are you doing in the next generations of our church? These are the best, and, and they, they're your Renaissance kids. They're smart, athletic, good-looking. They bring everything to the table. And imagine for a second, a worldly power, another nation that you can't stand, comes in and takes your kids and takes them away to another culture, another location, another place, what does that feel like? What, what, what are your kids going to do in that situation if they're taken away into another culture, into another location? The question for all of us that we have to think about is, what do you consider home? So if someone was to ask you, where are you from, how would you answer that question? And, and that can be a kind of a hard question to ask. Um, I think about a couple of weeks ago, uh, Dale and Beth McCoy, they sent me a text message picture and uh, they were in Central High. They had taken one of their uh, weekend drives down to Central High, which wouldn't mean much to you, but Central High is down around Marlowe and Duncan in Southwest Oklahoma, and that's where I grew up. I was born in a little town called Okeen, which is a small town, kind of western Oklahoma. Lived there for six months. We moved back to my parents, my dad's hometown there in Central High, and that's where I spent most of my childhood. So if you asked me where I was from, what was home, I would probably say Central High. Except as you get older, what is home? You know, what, what does it mean? Like, okay, that's where I'm from, but Amanda and I, we kind of established our lives and family together in New Orleans, and so that felt like home. So when we got washed out by Hurricane Katrina and had to come live back in Oklahoma, it felt so weird because we were living back in a place we'd grown up, and yet it didn't feel like we were home during those times because we were establishing our life on the Gulf Coast. And now... Life came full circle, and here we are back in Oklahoma reestablishing life and being in home here. Those of you who grew up in military families, those of you who home life as a kid was not particularly happy, those of you who have been through difficult life circumstances, it's a little tricky to establish what is home. Where am I really from? Where do I find my roots? Here's what I want to tell, tell you. That feeling is an important feeling theologically. Because as the people of God, we live in this world, and yet this world as it currently exists is not ultimately our home. So how do we live as people in exile? And what you find is as you read the Bible, the exile is not a random historical fact. The exile is the human condition. And so what you see playing out in the book of Daniel is not just something we learn in Sunday school. This is something we need to embody as the people of God. What does it mean to remain faithful to a faithful God in a world that's not faithful to that God? How do we live in a world that's not ultimately our home? You remember those, um, it's probably 20, 30 years ago that these were popular, though they may be coming back around. Those 3D pictures that you had to stare at the picture and then out of nowhere, like an image would kind of jump out at you. And if you weren't good at seeing them, you got mad at all the other people that could see the image because they're telling you an image they can see in this picture and you can't see it and you're trying to find it and it pops out. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. I think the theme of exile is kind of like that in the Bible. Once you start to think about it, you just see it popping out all over the place. Let me show you the foundation of this. Genesis chapter 3. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 23. Creation story. Adam and Eve have turned against the covenant of God. They've, they've not trusted in God's word. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out, exiled him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. 
the first exile is not Daniel and his friends. It's not Israel in 722 BC. The first exile you see in scripture happens when Adam and Eve are sent out of the Garden of Eden. They were living in God's perfect paradise. They were living in the place that God had created from. This was the promised land. This was the promised land that God had made for them and they turned against God's covenant. They didn't trust him and they were exiled. Now look what happens in verse 24. This is so key and we'll get into this next week. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What direction were Adam and Eve exiled and sent out? They were sent east. All throughout scripture, the movement of the people of God is to get back west. When the temple and the tabernacle were established, the way you got back into the temple was by going west. You got back into the presence of God by moving back that direction. When the people moved east in Daniel, where were they sent from the promised land to Babylon? What direction did they go? They went east. And the whole movement of God's salvation and redemption is to bring them west back to the promised land. This theme of exile begins to go throughout scripture. You see it showing up in different ways. You have the exile to Egypt. This shows up a little bit in the Abraham story. Because where does God find Abram? He finds him in the east. What direction does God bring him? He brings him west to the promised land, but then Abram finds himself down in Egypt at certain times. But the figure we really think of is Joseph. And if you've got a Bible in front of you and you mark in it, or you've got one of those scripture journals in front of you, what I want you to watch for as we go throughout Daniel are the correlations between the life of Daniel and the life of Joseph. Think about the relationship in the Bible between those two figures. Here's Joseph sent down into Egypt because of turmoil in his family, ultimately sent out because of his brothers and their sin against the Lord. He's sent into Egypt. He rises to power. He remains pure and faithful to God, and he prepares ultimately the way for the exodus, for the people to return back to the, to the promised land. What do you have with Daniel? <laughs> A young man who's sent into a foreign nation, remains faithful and pure before the Lord. The Lord allows him to rise to a place of prominence and ultimately he paves the way for the people to come back to the promised land. You already see this exile theme being set up. Second Chronicles chapter 36. If you want to read about the final days of the southern kingdom and how everything was crumbling, Second Chronicles 35 and 36, that's where you go to, to find those type of verses. Nebuchadnezzar took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the king of Persia. And we'll learn about that more in Daniel. Look at the next verse. This was to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. And all the days that it lay less desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So the people are sent into exile because they had not been following the covenant of the Lord. They hadn't been keeping the Sabbath. They hadn't been trusting him in the land. And so God sent them out. For how long? 70 years, approximately. Why the number 70 there? It's because, think of the Sabbath happening every seven days, multiplied by 10, an image of fullness and completeness. They are sent into exile so the land can actually experience the rest it was supposed to experience all the time that they were living in the land. They are sent out so this purification will happen. What happens in Jeremiah chapter 29 as Jeremiah is writing to the exiles? 
Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. And then there's this famous image in verses 10 and 11. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. This verse that comes to us and we think, what's the context for that? It's this image of God making the promise to his people at the end of this time that he will draw them back into his land. Now here's an image of exile you may not have thought of, but I would propose to you that it is fundamental for understanding what happens in the book of Daniel. Psalm chapter 22, verse one. Psalm 22 begins this, this cry to the Lord. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The word forsaken there in Psalm 22 is the same word that's used in other places in reference to exile, to the people being forsaken and sent into exile. Now what do we also know about Psalm chapter 22, verse 1? This is the cry of Jesus from the cross. That on the cross, Jesus is experiencing a form of exile. He is entering into the story of the people of Israel, the people of God, and he is taking on the exile and the punishment and the suffering that was due us, and he's taking that for us. He is entering into that story, so for what purpose? That he will bring us back to the Lord. In Scripture, for God's people, hear me out on this, exile is never the end of the story, that there's always a path back. But you know what? We can't get ourselves back. The story of Daniel, Daniel is not the hero. It points to Jesus. It points to Jesus as the one who is ultimately able to save, the one who is ultimately able to draw us back. Because remember what we talked about earlier on this exile theme? This is the human condition, that every one of us in our sin is exiled from the presence of God, from the promises, we face death, and yet God draws us back. You know one of my favorite exile stories in the Bible is the prodigal son parable. Think about that prodigal son parable. That here's this one who goes away from the house, goes away from his father's house, goes away from the promised land, goes into a land that's opposed to the way of the Lord, ultimately drawn back to the father, and he doesn't find an irritated, spiteful father. He finds a loving, running, gracious father who receives him back. As the people of God, we are drawn out of exile, the exile that would lead to our death and our separation from God. We are drawn out of that by Jesus, but here's the key. We still live in a world where people die. We still live in a world where people face unbelievable pain and suffering. We still live in a world that is opposed to the way of God. And here's the question we have to ask as Christians. How do we live faithfully in a world like this that's not ultimately our home, knowing that we have already been rescued because of the good news of Jesus? How do you live in a world that's not actually your home? Well, you get verses like Philippians chapter 3. And if you'd like to turn over in your New Testament, this is where I want to take us this morning from the book of Daniel to Philippians chapter 3. How do we live as the people of God, remaining faithful to God in a land that isn't ultimately our final home? 
Here's what you get in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. It says there, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The first key is to look to exile's end and to ultimately stand firm. Remember that the experience we have right now in this world is not the end of the story. Where is our citizenship? Our citizenship is in heaven. And where your citizenship is shapes your values, shapes your actions, shapes your decisions. Meaning, what's our calling as God's people? To live as his people in this world that's opposed to him. We live as citizens of a different kingdom, not ultimately of the kingdoms of this world. Verse 31, look at what it says next. Or 21, I mean. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, stand firm thus in the Lord. The first calling from the book of Daniel is to stand firm. When those teenagers got to Babylon, and they were living in a land that was not their home, and they were living in a land that was completely opposed to the way of the Lord, the first decision they had to make is that they would stand firm in the Lord, that that would be their foundation. They wouldn't acquiesce to the culture that they were a part of. They wouldn't get there and live in despair. They would say, yep, this world is not our final home, but we are going to stand firm. We will not back down from our trust in the Lord. And we have to remember In this world, as God's people, exile is coming to an end. This is not the end of the story. Stand firm. Trust in the Lord. Why? Because, friends, he is faithful. He is so, so faithful. And our hope is in him that one day he will make all things right. Stand firm. Okay, that's good, but, oh, and I could really use some help standing firm. Like, I really do. I really do want to trust in the Lord, and and I, I hear you on that, and I think that's great, but I could sure use some help on that. I think that's where Philippians 3.17 comes into play. Look back a couple of verses if you're looking there in your phone or your Bible. Verse 17, what does Paul say? He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Here's what I want to set before you this morning. In God's word, he has given us powerful examples of what it looks to, like to stand firm in the Lord in a world that's opposed to the ways of God. Which is why you get examples like Jeremiah. Why you get examples like the book of Daniel. Why you get in the New Testament, Paul and the letter to 1 Peter, and the book of Revelation, and all these examples of the churches that lived in a world that was opposed to the way of God but stood firm. And I know you know this, but let's let's be reminded of it together today. Christianity, God's people being faithful to him, has always been flourishing in a minority movement. In other words, Christianity flourishes Not when we have all the power in the culture, not when we have all of the things that make us feel like this world is our home, but when we find ourselves in situations where we don't have the power and and we're not in the majority. And in those situations, we come back to this reality of, God, you are in control, and I do trust you, and we will stand firm in the Lord, which puts us in a really interesting situation as the American church. 
that in the years ahead, we need to learn from our brothers and sisters around the world who daily stand firm in the Lord in situations where they don't have any power, where they are constantly opposed. And we, as the church in the West, need to stand before those brothers and sisters and say, we want to learn from you. We humbly receive you as an example of what it means to follow the Lord and stay faithful to him in a culture that's not often faithful to the Lord. Because why, why, do we, why is that so important? Look in verses 18 and 19, and we'll wrap up here. Verse 18, many of whom I have often told you and now tell you with even tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Why do you need good examples in your life of people who trust the Lord? Because many around you will not walk according to the cross of Christ. And in this verse, what that means is not walking with humility, not embracing suffering, trying to make this world your home. And Paul says, when you look around, you're gonna find a lot of people who don't want anything to do with the cross of Christ. So you need good examples of people who are committed to the Lord. Verse 19, those who are opposed to the cross, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. People who worship their appetites. Every desire is to be fulfilled. Every feeling I have has to be right and true. This idea that I live ultimately for the things of this world. And Paul is reminding them, hey, we don't live that way. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's not of this world. We need examples of people who stand firm who say, I'm not going to necessarily satisfy every appetite I have in this world because I'm looking to greater things. I'm looking to what only God can provide. Here's an interesting story. Somebody who really, really lived for earthly things and followed every appetite and desire was a man named John Newton. John Newton grew up in a world where at the age of 11, he began to travel with his father on these uh, shipping expeditions. His father owned a ship, and John, at the, can you imagine an 11-year-old going off to go on these week-long, month-long shipping expeditions with, with his father? Uh, what kind of influence is that on your 11-year-old, hanging out with sailors uh, all the time? And, and by all accounts, John Newton took it all in. Uh, he was famous among his friends for coming up with bad words that even the sailors didn't know. Um, I'm not sure how accurate that story is, but this is a story that's told about Newton of, of how obscene his language was and how much he was opposed to the way of the Lord. John Newton joined the Royal Naval uh, Force and ultimately deserted, which didn't make him any friends. He, he ran away from the Royal Navy. He found himself a part of another ship. And the captain and the seamen hated him so much that when they got on this ship to West Africa, they left Newton there. Said, so you're going to stay here in another country, not your own, and you're going to be an indentured servant to this family here in West Africa. So don't miss my point here. John Newton was an exile. He knew what it felt like to live in a country that's not your own. He lived there in West Africa. Ultimately, he makes his way back to Britain, where God finally, after time, gets his attention. And many of you know the story that Newton went on to, later in his life, team up with Wilberforce, uh, leading to the abolition of slavery there in that area. Newton also became a pastor 
and he became a songwriter, and his most famous song is Amazing Grace. Think about the line from Amazing Grace, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Think about that line for someone who spent several years in exile, living lost in a country that was not his own, living lost following every pleasure of the world, living lost having no direction in life. And God, by his grace, rescues him out of that, brings him out of that, and as Newton experiences God's grace, it causes him then to become gracious to people around him. When you see an amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Friend, that's an exile song. That's a song of what it looks like to be separated from the land of God, to be separated from the presence and power of God, and then to be brought back to him. And when we're brought back to him, to trust him and to be faithful to him because he is unbelievably faithful to us. I wanna lead you in a time of prayer. And after I pray, we're gonna stand up and we're gonna sing the final chorus of amazing grace as we're dismissed this morning. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for our church family as we study through the book of Daniel that we would think about what it means to be exiles and strangers in this world. God, knowing our citizenship is ultimately in heaven, that we don't live for the kingdom of this world, but that doesn't mean that our goal is just to escape this world. God, you have called us to live here faithfully, to be your ambassadors, to live pure and holy lives, not because we're trying to be better than others, but because we want people to see how good you are. And so God, over the coming weeks, would you teach us about your faithfulness and would you teach us to live faithful lives in this world? God, we pray for friends and family members who are living in exile, so to speak, who, who are living lives where they have just completely given themselves over to the ways of the world. Those who want nothing to do with your grace or your kingdom, who are like the prodigal son, have gone far, far away. God, would you draw them back? Would you remind them of Jesus on the cross, that he took our place, that he died for us in our place, taking on our sin, taking on your wrath, making a way for salvation and return? God, I know so many people in here praying for friends and children and grandchildren. And God, we know we need good examples of what it looks like to live in exile, to be faithful. And so God, let us be those good examples for one another. God, thank you for the examples you've placed in this church of people who live lives where they face unbelievable suffering and difficulty, and yet we know they're not living for this world. God, their hope is in you, and God, thank you for those examples, and let us be that for one another. And God, thank you for the example of John Newton and how you called him out of exile. You called him out of sin to yourself by your amazing grace. And God, when we experience that grace, it causes us to be gracious to others. And I pray that as people experience us this week, as we're around others, 
God, you would remind us of how gracious you've been to us, and that would cause us to be gracious to others. God, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.